Well, today we're kicking off a brand new series. We're going to be here for a while. <laughs> I'm not in a hurry. Uh, we're going to be in the book of Acts. Um, we're going to take our time. We're going to travel through it. Um, I want to start with an introduction today, and then I'm going to get into chapter one. Uh, my hope is to give you my takeaways from each chapter. And if a chapter takes more than one week, then so be it. Amen? And so we've created some paper notes. Many of you were handed a binder this morning. You've got paper notes. Pastor Jamie's going back old school, yo. I expect to see Bibles, not phones. I expect to see papers and pencils. Come on, somebody. I'm going to post some sharpeners on the wall or something. Like, don't even get them old, them new pencils. Like, get a real number. A number two pencil. Come on, somebody. Act like you're taking a test with them little circle things. And you, Anyway. So you got a binder. You got some notes. You'll have notes every week. There's, there's uh, announcements on the back of those notes so that you can keep up a, with what's going on here at OSC. I appreciate the digital world, but I am, I am, I am committed to not let go of the paper pencil world. Come on, somebody. Okay. So you got it. Keep it with you. Fill it up. I commit to give you the notes. You commit to fill them out and apply them to your life. And let's just see what Jesus might do with this church. Come on, somebody. So we'd ask you to travel along with us as we do that. So today's church, the capital C church across the globe, for the most part, not everybody, but for the most part, has become an attractional church. Uh, we have nice buildings, cool decor, smoke machines. I got a friend who wanted to put a smoke machine in here. <laughs> I didn't call you out. John did. <laughs> Lights, big screens. Anything else you can think of to make church more attractive. And that's what the church has become lately. It's become attractional. Now, I want you to hear my heart. There is nothing wrong with being attractive. <laughs> but attraction alone is not enough, right? And so, so what happens or what has been happening is that that the church has gotten focused on the unbeliever, which it should be. But it created the Sunday experience in such a way that it's a, it's a, hey, would you come in here and then we'll share Jesus with you so that maybe you would receive Jesus. And, and hundreds of thousands of people over the last 10, 15 years have received Christ as their Lord and Savior. Okay? But what's happened to the found people? The found people have become spectators. We just, we just come and we just sit and we celebrate the new believer and we sit and we spectate. That's not good enough. I don't think God's satisfied with that. So I'm just trying to prepare your heart as we travel through the book of Acts because you're not going to see much attractional church. Yeah, you're not going to see that in the book of Acts. There was a little fuss about buildings and equipment. In fact, they just met wherever there was an empty space to meet. Upper rooms, colonnades, meeting halls, on the street, in the wilderness. They just kind of met wherever they could meet. 
There was no fuss over buildings. There was nothing about the building that attracted people. They were attracted to the power and love and grace of Jesus Christ. In fact, if you were one of Jesus' followers or the following the, one of the disciples, you would spend very little time in buildings and most of your time out in the marketplace, the neighborhoods, and the countrysides. Dr. Scott Adams said, we have been more focused on entertaining the lost than equipping the found. Yeah, that's what I said. Poof. The attractional church is not all bad. It's created some excitement on Sundays. We all love to see the unbeliever get saved. We all love to see the new believer get water baptized, right? We all love a freedom weekend when, when a believer, we get filled with the Holy Spirit. They would get baptized with the Holy. We all celebrate with that. So uh, being attraction is not all bad. But there are some cautions, though. Leonard Ravenhill said this. He said, what you win people with is what you ultimately win people to. So the last thing we ever need to do is win people to church. We need to, we need to win people with Jesus. Come on, because you win them with Jesus and that's what they become. You win them to church and you got church people. All right. I'm just, I'm just, it's just an introduction. So we failed to equip people to the mission of Jesus. I personally love attractive things. I love my wife. She's attractive. Ay, ay, ay. And we will always strive to do things with excellence, right? Watch this. Not for the unbeliever, but for the honor of Jesus. So we'll, we'll paint the buildings. We'll, we'll, we'll shampoo the carpets. We'll, we'll make sure the chairs ain't falling apart. We'll, we'll put some lights up. We'll, we'll increase the atmosphere a little bit. But it's all in the honor of Jesus not to become attractional to the unbeliever alone. Because we don't have to have that to accomplish the mission that Jesus has given us. The book of Acts is going to prove that to us. So I want you to keep in mind that the early church had a lot of problems. Remember, they were the first ones. They didn't have much structure. Communication was difficult. <laughs> they were all letters, y'all. Like wrote letters. And, and they didn't have the mailman. Like one of the junior disciples was the mailman. And he didn't even have a car. He probably walked or ran, depending on how urgent the message was. Communication was difficult. Persecution was real. They didn't just have people talking about them and hurting their feelings. They had people hurting their body. They had people throwing stuff at them. Peter was crucified upside down because he was a follower of Jesus. But they are the first of many that God would use to build his church. If you'll remember from last week's message, the way we build is by loving God with all that we have, loving our neighbor as ourself, and then going out and making disciples. Super simple. Super simple. Love God with everything that you have. Love your neighbor. Be willing to do for them whatever you're willing to do for yourself. No matter what. 
and then go with intention and make disciples. How do you make a disciple? You first start by winning them to Christ. They have to be born again before they can become a disciple. (laughs) It is the first step. So let me give you a little bit of foundation about the book of Acts. The author of Acts is Luke, who also wrote what book? Okay. (laughs) Just a little test. (laughs) Thank you to the person who thought it was something else and didn't blurt it out. Come on, somebody. (laughs) He's writing to a guy he calls Theophilus. Theophilus has a meaning to the name. It's, It's friend or lover of God. So Theophilus is, is, is evidently Luke's friend who loves God. It was written about 62 AD. Luke was a, a, a physician. He was a doctor. Uh, in fact, he, he, he attended to Paul several times when Paul would get beat up for preaching the gospel. He spent his ministry time with Paul and they were good friends. This is what I love. Luke was very detailed. He had a passion and a desire for details and accuracy. It's believed that Luke uh, interviewed multiple people to make sure that what he was getting ready to write down was extremely accurate. Well, that's important. Peter and Paul are two of the main characters in Acts. And I'm grateful that Luke, I want you to watch this, that Luke took the time to record the Acts of the Apostle. It's really one of the only books in the Bible that records the Acts of the Apostles. That's what the book of Acts means. It's the Acts or actions or the the lifestyle or the history of the Apostles. He wrote down sometimes, it seemed like daily accounts of things that, that the Apostles went through. The reason I'm I'm passionate about the book of Acts and preaching it the way we're going to preach it this time is because I want us to build an expectation for what we can do, what we should expect from God, what is possible, and, and to also understand where the world is, and then to get a clear picture of the authority and confidence that we should have as believers. So by the time we get to the last chapter of Acts, I pray and my hope is, is that we We walk with confidence, with courage, with boldness, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and we get out of these doors and these walls, and we go into our communities, and we win the lost out there, and when we invite them to this beautiful church, it's because they met Jesus out there. So I've got four observations I want to share with you today from chapter one. Number one is there was this absolute proof that had to be nailed down. Jesus is going to prove something, and it it has to be. you got to get this today. It has to be true or proven in your life as well. So I'm going to meet you today, and some of you are going to find yourself lacking in this first point. But just hang tight. Don't be discouraged. That That can change. Chapter 1, verse 1 to 3. In my first book, I told you, Theophilus, about everything Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving his chosen apostles further instructions through the Holy Spirit. 
He's talking about the book of Acts. If you go back and read the book of Acts, Luke writes everything that Jesus, not everything, but he, he keeps an account of what Jesus did until the ascension into heaven, until they're standing at the seashore and, and the, the, the apostles see Jesus ascend into heaven. Like it's, it's, it's a beam me up Scotty kind of thing. It's like, he writes in Luke everything that Jesus began to do and teach until that point. Verse three, critical. During the 40 days after he suffered and died, he appeared to the apostles from time to time and he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive. And he talked to them about the kingdom of God. There's an absolute proof that your life must be built on. You cannot skirt around this you cannot be found wondering. You cannot be found lacking confidence in this. And it's this one fact that Jesus is alive. He may not be physically present on the earth, but Jesus is alive. It's an absolute foundational principle that your life must be built on. And you must find your confidence in that. So it says that Jesus spent 40 days after he rose from the grave proving to his disciples that he was alive. Or his apostles. What is an apostle? An apostle, most of us know the definition of an apostle as a sent one. One who's been sent somewhere to do something. Another definition for an apostle is, is a sent one, but also a convinced one. It's one thing to be sent. It's another thing to be convinced. Come on. This is critical, y'all, because some people relate to Jesus as someone who was at one time alive but now, just like anybody else who dies, he's gone from us, and he's up in the heavenly realms, and, he, and we'll see him again, but like, like he's on pause. He's just, he's just there. You really need to check your heart right now. You really need to check your theology. You need to check your confidence in that right now. They, people will tend to disassociate Jesus being alive because he is no longer present in the flesh. Question, is Jesus really alive to you? Or is he just a historical figure from the past? Before you answer, let me continue, because I'm going to put some pressure on that. Peter is one example that, that the, 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 the writers write about who, who Jesus proved himself to after he rose from the grave, right? If you remember on Friday before the day Jesus was crucified, Peter denied Jesus how many times? Three times. Sunday, Jesus comes out of the grave and then shortly after he calls for Peter and then, and then he sits with Peter and how many times does he ask Peter, do you love me? Jesus did that to reestablish the relationship with Peter that was broken on Friday. I don't even know the man. God, how do you think he felt after he said it the third time? 
No wonder he went back fishing. No wonder he backslid again. He had just denied Jesus three times. I don't know the man. Wow. But the beauty of Jesus is that when he comes out of the grave, he calls for Peter. Go get me, Peter. Come here, Peter. Come sit down. Let's talk, Peter. Do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Okay, Peter, feed my sheep. Peter, got another question for you. Do you love me? Yeah, yeah, Lord, I love you. Okay, feed my lambs. Okay. Peter, do you love me? Three denials, three confirmations. Don't tell me Jesus don't know how to restore people. Don't tell me he can't turn somebody around. No matter how bad it looks, don't tell me that Jesus can't call somebody's name again and bring them back into relationship with himself. And some of you need to hear that today because you know people that are running from Jesus. Don't worry, don't fret, just agree that Jesus is gonna call them back. And he knows how to restore people to himself. Peter comes out of that moment of restoration. God, do you see the grace in that? That was public. That was public denial. Think about it. Jesus is on his way to the cross. He's been arrested. He's getting ready to be on trial and then beaten and bruised. And, and all this is going on. And Peter's not even praying. He's denying. Yet the minute Jesus comes out of the grave, where's Peter? Go get my boy. I need Peter. That's grace. I don't think Jesus was holding anything against him. Like the devil probably told him he was. Peter comes out of that so convinced that Jesus is who he said he was, that he was willing to die for what he was convinced of. If you're not willing to die for Jesus, then you must not be convinced that Jesus is alive. You, you, gotta, you gotta wrestle this out. I had to wrestle this out while I'm writing this message. You gotta wrestle this out in your heart. You gotta get real honest with yourself. In fact, you need to get brutally honest with yourself. Have you been living unconvinced? Have you been living in denial? Have you, have you been living like, yeah, I know Jesus is alive, but, but it's like just a knowledge of, but no, no confidence. Not convinced. Thomas is another example. He, he was, <laughs> this is what I love about the Bible. It tells us that we can call each other nicknames. Thomas becomes Doubting Thomas. And it sticks with him still to today. Come on. You Doubting Thomas, you. We don't say it all the time anymore, but it'll come back around. Just give it time. 
Thomas doubted until he saw and touched Jesus' wounds. This is what's funny about Thomas, is Thomas is sitting in a room with a bunch of people that are so-called convinced that Jesus is alive, but he's the only one who has the honesty to say, I don't know, I just, like, like, can you prove it to me? Like, Jesus is standing right there, like, can you prove it to me? And Jesus doesn't rebuke him, Jesus doesn't get mad at him, Jesus doesn't storm out the room, Jesus says, come on, buddy, come touch my hands. Come touch my wounds. Look at my side. You see my side? Come touch it because this is what's important to Jesus. You must know that I'm alive. You cannot go further. You cannot build the kingdom that I want to establish on the earth if you're not convinced that I'm alive. Being convinced means that there's absolutely no doubt. Remember, If you're not willing to die for Jesus, some of us are like Thomas. You're hopeful that Jesus is alive, but you've got doubts if you're being really honest with yourself. I don't want you to panic, though. Don't panic. Jesus is not upset by that. In fact, he responds when you get honest with yourself about that. The minute you go, you know what, Lord, I believe you, but like, I got some unbelief. You remember the story in Mark where the father whose son was demon-possessed and he comes to Jesus and says, Lord, would you, would you help him if you can? And Jesus is like, what you mean if I can, bro? Like, I'm Jesus, cuz. At least that's the way I see it. And, and, and Jesus says, says, I can do anything if you believe. He says, what did the father say? I believe, but help me with my unbelief. What did he do? He confessed with his mouth. He didn't deny. He didn't become religious. He didn't try to fake it. He didn't try to pretend that he was something that he wasn't. He got completely honest with Jesus and said, help me with my unbelief. How do you get your doubts dealt with? When you confess them. Jesus wasn't mad. You see, Jesus had to prove that he was resurrected because he knew they would face situations where they would be challenged to believe otherwise. Let me tell you something. The day you give your life to Jesus and you decide to be a follower of Christ, you get a bullseye on your back. You want to know what you really get? You get a bullseye on your back. And now all of a sudden you got an enemy who's mad at you, who wants to annihilate you. He wasn't bothering you before because you wasn't a threat. But the day you gave your life to Jesus, baby, you got salvation, you got your name written in the book, and you got a bullseye too. And don't tell me he's not going to try to convince you That Jesus is not alive. That Jesus can't do it. That Jesus don't care that much. If Jesus wasn't proved alive, then how could they believe that he would return again one day? What if Friday was the last time they saw Jesus? There's... I've I've performed a lot of funerals lately. And this is the thing I know about a funeral. Once they put you in the ground, you usually don't see them again. If you do, (laughs) 
I'd suggest praying. <laughs> or rejoicing. One or the other depends on what you were believing for. But, but you typically don't see them again, and you're waiting for a day, hopefully, when we're restored together again, right? Like, I'm longing for the day I get to see my mother and my grandmother. Like, I can't wait to see them. I believe, I'm convinced, we're all going to be together again. What if Friday was the last day they saw Jesus? Could that be why for the next 40 days he proved himself to his apostles that I am alive and he allowed them to touch his wounds and to see his scars and he sat with them and he questioned and he challenged and he restored? You getting it yet? Because you see, if they didn't believe Jesus would return, then why should they give their lives for an assumption? Are you seeing how it's working? I mean, right out the gates in Acts chapter 1, Luke tells us very accurately that Jesus spent 40 days proving that he was alive. We have to pay attention to that. Amen? I got to move. Only, you ought to write this down, only a convinced man is willing to give up everything to follow Jesus. Only a convinced man or woman is, is willing to give up everything to follow Jesus. The second observation I make is this, this gift. There's a gift that God's going to give us. We find in, the, in the, the first chapter of Acts. It's found in verse 4. It says this, once when he was eating with them, he commanded them. Now, I love that part where it says once when he was eating with them. Come on, you know somebody's real if you're eating with them, right? I ain't never ate with a ghost. Like, we're breaking bread together. Come on, somebody. It don't get more real than that. Once when he was eating with them, he commanded them, do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised. Watch this. As I told you before. So they've already been told about the gift. In the Gospels, he tells them about the gift. Then he tells them again, go and wait until the Father sends you the gift he promised. Notice that God is sending the gift. They're not to go get the gift. They're there. I'm getting ahead of myself. As I told you before, John baptized with water, but in just a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Here it is. He commanded them to do what? Wait. What's your favorite word? <laughs> we don't wait well. Come on, somebody. I don't care what your personality type is. None of us wait well. In fact, come, the, come back for second service, let your stomach start to grundle, grumble, and then run to the restaurant and say, oh, we got a 20-minute wait. You know what you're doing? You done lost all your church. He commanded them to wait, not to go get, but to wait. This is important. You got to get this. The, the delivery of the gift was dependent on their willingness to wait. Mm, let that sink in for a minute. 
the delivery of the gift was de dependent or determined by their willingness to wait, which means this, that they could have walked out. They could have missed it. You got to understand something today. God's not chasing you around trying to put something on you like a mama trying to put a coat on a kid in wintertime. God's not running around trying to put something on you. He commands us to wait on him. He commands us to do something or he commands us to just sit, stop, and wait. And then he brings it. <laughs> he ain't chasing you. Waiting on God is better than running ahead of God. Amen. Isaiah 40, verse 31. Listen to what this says. But those who wait on the Lord, watch this. These are the benefits that come, the blessings that come. Those that wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. Do you need your strength renewed? They shall mount up on wings like eagles. Do you need to get a little bit higher than your situation? They, they shall run and not get weary. What? Tim told me he ran four miles this morning. Greg asked him, well, what was chasing you? It must have been bad. Four miles? Tim must have waited on the Lord because he, he ran and, and did not become weary. They shall walk and not faint. How do you get your strength renewed? Not by doing more, but by waiting. Just waiting. Americans don't wait well. We get food in less than five minutes, if you can call it food, right, Lindsay? I mean, this stuff, you leave it on the countertop for a year, it's still there. Like the ants won't even touch it. Five minutes, you can have a meal, so-called meal. We don't wait well. And let them take six minutes <laughs> how do you renew your strength when you're weak when you're weary when you're worn out how do you renew your strength wait on the Lord ants in the pants wait mm. why don't we like to wait you know what happens when you wait you think you know what happens when you think? Emotions come up. Memories come back. Some of you don't want to wait because you don't want what you're running from to catch up with you. So you're not actually running from God. You're running from your stuff. And if you'll wait, he'll renew your strength. You'll mount up on wing, wings like eagles. You'll rise above your past hurts, pains, and situations. Ah. They shall run and not grow weary. I'm going to quote that, that when I get back to the gym this week. <laughs> and then on the way out, I'm going to quote, I'll walk and not faint before I get to my truck. <laughs> so question, do you think it pays to wait? 
The apostles will soon learn the value of waiting on the Lord. And you're going to see it in the, in the chapters to come. And they're going to learn that it's not good to run ahead of God. You are blessed when you wait on the Lord. Write this down. It's a little bit long, but write it down. To wait on the Lord, one must be willing to die to self. For waiting is that process of dying. And that process is a gift. Mm -hmm. To wait on the Lord, one must be willing to die to self. For waiting is that process of dying. And that process is a gift. Amen. Jesus says, John baptized with water. In a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. That word baptized is the Greek word baptizo, which means to go under. It means to bathe in. It means to submerse in. We're not a sprinkling church. Come on, somebody. You want a sprinkle of the Holy Spirit or you want to be submersed in the Holy Spirit? Come on, you want to bathe in the Holy Spirit or you want to splash and dash? Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. You do that to your kids when you're in a hurry. You quit that when you're an adult, right? Number three, third observation. Jesus is getting ready, getting ready to drop off some power and some purpose. There's power and purpose. Verse six. So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? Let me stop there for just a second. Listen to that question. Has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? Their, their concern was for their nation. I'm, I'm about to get up in your Kool-Aid for a second. Their, their concern, their worry, their fear, their question was wrapped up about their nation and their kingdom. Anybody worried about America today? Anybody worried more about America than the lost? It's okay, you don't have to answer. Anybody worried more about the, the nation of America than worried about those that are dying and going to hell? Worried about those that are sick and hurting and struggling? Are you more worried about your nation and less about God's kingdom? They're asking the question. It says they kept asking him. Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? Listen to Jesus' response. He replied, the father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know. In other words, ain't none of your business. What's God going to do with America? Ain't none of your business. He's going to do it when he wants to do it, how he wants to do it. You just need to keep on doing what you're supposed to be doing. You don't need to become a Christian nationalist. That's where Christians blend in nationalism and it gets muddy. So none of your business. Doesn't mean you can't pray. Doesn't mean you can't stand. You're in this world. You're in this nation. Verse 8, but, this is one of those good buts in the Bible, you will receive power 
when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You see it? Verse 6, they're concerned about their nation. Verse 8, Jesus says, listen, put that aside. That's not what's important right now. What's important right now is this but that I'm about to give you. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere. Jesus refocuses their attention on what he knows is next, the power in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the main character of Acts, and they learn to follow him now. Think about the apostles. They've been following Jesus for three, roughly three and a half years. A human in the flesh. They can touch, sit down and eat meals with him. They've been following him. He goes, and then they're waiting for a spirit. Now they're going to have to learn how to follow the Holy Spirit whom you cannot always see. In fact, the only way you know really when he's there is when you see the evidence of his presence. That's what you felt at the, at the, at the end, end part of worship this morning. This is brand new to them. It's unsettling to them. Think about it. Like, I'm used to following Jesus, and then now I've got to follow the Holy Spirit. Like, what does that even mean? You know, what's funny is when, when we get born again and filled with God's Spirit or baptized with the Holy Spirit, we're the same way. It's brand new, right? It's unsettling. This is where some of your wrestle is to, to totally surrender with, to Christ, is that, is that you're, you're, you're unsettled because you don't have somebody that you can tangibly follow. Now you're following the leadership of the Holy Spirit, and that's, that's unique, and it's, it's different. You've never done that before, but, but it doesn't mean you can't learn, and it doesn't mean you can't discover, and it doesn't mean you can't walk in it. You just got to walk in it. You got to be willing to get it wrong a few times in order to get it right. But they learned quickly, didn't they? If you've read the book of Acts, they learned quickly. You might ought to write this down. Quick growth only comes with radical obedience. Quick growth never comes with disobedience. It only comes with radical obedience. Then he tells them they're going to be witnesses, which means this, that you're going to tell people about me everywhere. I believe this church will grow at the pace you tell others about Jesus. I feel so good now that I've said that. I believe this. How many of you want this church to grow? Show hands. Okay, 80%. <laughs> I don't know what the rest of you are thinking, but that's okay. We, we want this church to grow, right? But we don't want to become an attractional church and, and win people to church. We want to win people to Christ, right? I believe the church will grow at the pace of you telling people wherever you go about Jesus. Here's a secret or a tip. If they're breathing and they got at least one ear, you're supposed to tell them about Jesus. <laughs> What's the qualifications? Breathing and one ear. Just one. And if they, and if they, yeah, if they can't, if they don't have, if they can't hear, go find Clarabelle. She'll sign it to them. 
Romans, Romans 1.5, I shared this last week, but I want to share it again. What, listen to what it says. Through him, we received both the generous gift of his life and the urgent, say urgent, the urgent. How many of you are thinking about that song? Urgent. Anyway, the urgent, ta- you're thinking about that, Doug? Yes. The, the urgent task of passing it on to others who receive it by entering into obedient trust in Jesus. There's an urgent responsibility to tell others about the saving grace of Jesus. When you, when you dig into this, it uses the language of debt. Like we owe the world around us Jesus. We owe it to him. We're indebted because we got it. Now we got to give it. I don't know about you, but I don't want another 9-11 to get my heart right. I want revival in my heart right now. I want it without a crisis. You know how you get that? You totally surrender and submit to God. And you radically obey. Go and be a witness. Amen? All right. That was number three. Number four, you start to discover something that you're going to continue to see throughout the book, and I call it unifying prayer. This is, this is important too. Well, I didn't share nothing that wasn't important, except for the song Urgent. That wasn't important. Unifying prayer, Acts chapter 1, verse 14. Watch, watch what happens. So, so they see Jesus ascend into heaven. The angel goes, what y'all waiting for? <laughs> like he's not there no more. Like you can't see him. Like just go do what he said to do. So the Bible says they walked about a half a mile back to the place they were staying and they went up into the room and this is where we find verse 14. It says they all met together and were constantly united in prayer. I love the way it says that. They were constantly united, where? In prayer. Prayer was and is the unifier of believers. Notice though, it was constant. I see, I see a day coming shortly when we'll be meeting to pray to stay united. Think about how the shot is dividing the church right now. Oh, you might not think it's dividing the church. It's dividing the church. A shot is dividing the church. How do we reunite? In prayer. The church has to reunite in prayer. Last time I checked, We live in America. You want to get a shot? Get a flipping shot. You don't want to get a shot? Don't get the flipping shot. Don't judge me. I won't judge you. Can we just still be friends and love one another and go on and be peaceful and happy and establish the kingdom of God on this earth and stop fussing about a stupid shot? It gives a list of everyone who is there initially waiting. You can read that list. It's, it's right there above verse 14. I didn't take the time to count how many people were there, but there was a bunch of people there. I can't help but believe that 
that of all those people, at least a few of them had a D personality. How many of you got a D personality? Driven, determined. Come on. Dogmatic. No, <laughs> yeah, it's true. You put us in a room and make us wait five minutes, we're going to come up with a new plan. Bro, listen, I know, I know what the Holy Ghost said. I know what Jesus said, but you know what? I, 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 just, I really feel like we need to go do this. How many of you believe that in those, in those group of people that were sitting there waiting on the Lord, that some of them were getting anxious? You think a few of them might have had an opinion? You think some of them struggled with impatience? And they're all in one room. That's like evacuating for a hurricane with people you don't really want to evacuate with. You're stuck with them now until the storm passes. You, you're getting what I'm putting down? Like they're, they're stuck in a room waiting for the gift to come and, and they're... There's more than one person there. The best thing they could do was pray. My God, you got to get back together. You got to stay united. The only way they sit there long enough to receive the gift is by uniting in prayer. I wonder if when we're getting a little nervous and uptight, if we would start praying together, and in doing so, receive a peace that passes all understanding like the scriptures promise. You see, what I love about when we have prayer meetings here is in the early days, I used to worry about how many people showed up. Then I got past that. And you know what? Whoever shows up, shows up. We're going to sit down. We're going to kneel down. We're going to get on our face before God. and We're going to pray. And when it's all said and done, we're going to come out of here better than we walked in. We're going to come out here more united than when we walked in. Because you can't sit down together or kneel down together and talk to the Father in heaven and not walk out united and full of peace if you really prayed. I kind of got this picture. It's kind of like when dad calls the family together. He calls all the kids in the room because they've been acting like a bunch of drunk Indians. You ever have that problem? Hey, get over here. Right now. I'm not saying God's fussing at us. But what happens? What are y'all doing? Then when it's all said and done, it, what happens? Yes, sir. You hold hands. When my kids rebelled and they were stubborn, I'd sit them in front of the TV holding hands, facing us while we watched TV. <laughs> Cruel and unusual punishment. But they didn't die. Right, Ethan? You die. But it's like when we come together and we talk to the Father together, He sorts out our differences. He checks our heart, our motives, our intentions. Are you seeing it? And in that process, you gain peace. It's Philippians 4 6 and 7. Peace that you just can't understand. Amen? Come on, Anna. So when we're tempted to divide, 
All we need to do is reunite in prayer. But if you let division get too far, you're not going to want to pray. Come on, husband and wife. You see, I don't read where the disciples did a whole lot of praying in the Gospels. I read where Jesus got up early and got away by himself and prayed. But if you think about it, you don't read very many times where the disciples actually prayed. But they had this incredible example in front of them, Jesus, where many times they would, they would wake up and he's gone. Where did he go? He went out to a quiet place to pray. And when he come back, they would say, where you been? talking to my daddy but what you're going to see in the book of Acts is that the example that Jesus gave was the actions that his, his apostles began to take I pray that over us today that we'll be a praying church when little Victorias are are struggling with physical health. That we come together, we unite our faith together, and we trust God to do the impossible. Amen? When someone's had a stroke, and we pray, and they walk out of that like they never had a stroke. Twice in one household sometimes, right? Father, we thank you for today. I thank you for Acts. I thank you for this journey we're taking as a church. Oh God, I pray that you wreck us with Acts. God, I pray that you call us out of complacency with Acts. I pray that, God, you give us a clear vision, a great expectation. That God, even an anticipation will begin to brew up in our hearts that when we wake up in the morning, we can experience the kingdom of God here on earth, wherever we go. God, build a confidence in us. I pray that we're convinced that Jesus is alive without any doubt. God, we build our lives on top of that walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. Help us, Lord. Help us today. No one looking around this morning. Heads bowed, eyes closed. If, they, if you're here today and you've never responded to the gospel, if you've never clearly giving your life to Jesus and you want to make that decision today, I want to give you an opportunity right now to do so. Just simply lift your hand. Anybody in the room? Praise God. So Father, take this word, seal it upon our hearts. Transform us into your likeness and into your image. Empower us with your Holy Spirit. 